Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. Uh, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, who for the very last time, I'm going to say, joins us from Witz University. Kobus, you have some big news to share with us. Yes, I'm moving from Witz University to the South African Institute of International Affairs, um, where I'm going to be a researcher in the China Africa program. So I'm very excited. So I'm very happy for you. Please don't get me wrong. But at the same time, I am a little bit frustrated that you picked an organization that is such a mouthful to say, the South African Institute of International Affairs. So for eight years, I've been saying WITS. Now I got to get... No, we first started with the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch, and it took me about three months to get used to WITS. Now it's going to take me just as long to get Saya out. Well, congratulations. Very exciting. Uh, you're going to be in the China-Africa space, so you are the first of us to actually make a living off of China-Africa. That is really an impressive feat. I am very, very impressed, and, and I admire you for that. I hope to follow you one day, but unfortunately, uh, they're, the, the, here in China, they're not actually spending a whole lot of money on people studying China-Africa, which is rather unfortunate. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about uh, a, a new documentary film that's coming out, and I am particularly excited about this one. We have covered, as you mentioned earlier, Kobus, Every documentary on China-Africa, I think, has come our way, and we've had, to, had the chance to talk to the filmmakers and the producers. Uh, and, and this one is, is actually very interesting because most of the people that we've had uh, who've produced documentaries are professional filmmakers. And today we're going to be talking about a film made by independent filmmakers, people kind of like you and I who have day jobs but yet do China-Africa on the side. And, and what's interesting about this particular documentary is how – it touches on so many different key points in the China-Africa relationship, but it actually covers a lot of new ground talking about the new generation of young Chinese who are in Africa, and in so many ways, they are charting a very different course from their predecessors. This documentary picks, you know, has its finger on the pulse of, of China-Africa relations 2017, in the sense that it shows a different kind of, of migration of Chinese, young Chinese people to Africa, and it also touches on the development of and maturing of Chinese business in Africa, um, highlighting some of the problems that some of these companies are facing. So it's very, very interesting to view. Yeah, it's not a partisan film. And a lot of films coming out about China-Africa often tend to be partisan. Chinese, you know, are bad. That's the Vice documentary or the Vice story that was there, which is, has that sinister thump-thump kind of music behind it. Or you're confronted with a lot of the CGTN, CCTV schlock that is oftentimes far too, everything is great and rosy. This really paints a very, very complex picture. The documentary is Behind the Belt, a look at China's cultural influence in Kenya. I'm assuming that the belt is a reference to the Belt and Road, which uh, we will get to. It's made by two independent filmmakers, Philip Mann and G.D. Guo, uh, in, who now live in Shanghai. Uh, welcome to you both, uh, and a very good evening. Hi, good Hi. to talk to you both. Good evening. It is uh, really a pleasure to have you on the show. Congratulations on the documentary. It's going to be released very soon on YouTube. Um, you painted, again, a very complicated picture, and, and the film, when it started... Uh, felt, had a feeling like you were going down a path of this is a very optimistic story. And then you started to bring up a lot of the complexities in the relationship. Tell us a little bit about the storytelling process and how you came to the different themes that you addressed in the show. Yeah, sure. So actually, when we really started to research this, um, Jid and I were pretty new in the whole topic. So we really dive in there. And we were just intrigued by uh, the information that we found. 
And what we really wanted to do is also what you said in the intro is to give a very objective view of what we were going to see there. So, um, and I think even more so, like rather than saying objective, uh, the part that was interesting for me is like obviously China and Africa have this relationship that we read a lot about in the media that is very investment based, business, infrastructure, etc. But just from like a personal interest, I was wondering how, what does this look like? Uh, who are the people involved? Like who is affected by this? What do they think? And we kind of felt that that, um, that narrative was a bit missing from uh, whether you want to see like BBC or Vice or even like the Xinhua, uh, like the more Chinese networks. And we were literally just like, let's go there on the ground, find the people who are involved in this like grander story and just ask them how they feel. Yeah. And, and in terms of the storytelling process, um, I guess we did it a bit the other way around. You know, usually you, you do the research, you kind of have a story in mind, you know, you might even already have a script and you then you shoot for the script. And we really went there with, you know, let's see what we find. And, you know, we had a list of people that we wanted to talk to and we, we went there and we kind of um, had a theme in mind and you know GD did the interviews and we let the camera roll and we had very genuine conversations with these people now what happened is when we came back we had a lot of material and that's actually when we thought okay what is the story and how can we you know create a compelling um, 30 minute uh, video out of this so the storytelling kind of happened when we came back and saw uh, you know the interviews that we did so I wanted to ask you, actually, in, in, in that vein, um, what, were, what did you expect to find before you went? And then how were your expectations, uh, you know, upended by the, when you actually started shooting? Mm. I think because, like, because neither one of us are particularly, like, we don't really have a strong background in uh, China-Africa relationships. So I think that actually helped us in a way that we were quite open into approaching it. We knew that there was like a large like Chinese presence, but we didn't quite know exactly, uh, we, or we didn't have any like um, uh, like kind of pre premeditated thoughts of what we wanted to shoot or what we were hoping to find. So I think uh, when we started looking at people, it was mainly like who is doing interesting things like from the Chinese people who were there. So we kind of did like a snowball approach looking into different organizations, uh, people that are already featured in the media. And then we wanted to kind of counterbalance that with uh, local uh, Kenyans because it's set in Nairobi. And we were just looking at people that have worked for um, like Chinese companies, uh, people that do like kind of training entrepreneurships, uh, uh, students who are enrolled in, uh, in Chinese programs, etc. So I think we were generally quite open going into this. And um, I think in terms of like, yeah, what was, what was a really good experience Experience for us was that everyone was so friendly and very open to talk to us at least and also um, yeah just like kind of lend their opinions their lives and their voices uh, for this passion project of ours. It really was surprising to hear how open people were and how honest they were and so just for those of our listeners who haven't seen it or plan to see it but haven't yet seen it um, and it is available on YouTube by the time that people listen to the show, uh, so people can look up for Behind the Belt. I just want to kind of list off a couple of the key themes that you brought up. And you opened up on the importance of language and how the Chinese are 
uh, implementing uh, Confucius Institutes, which are the language training centers, and particularly in Nairobi, where there is a, a rather large one that's there, and the importance of the the communication between just the simple communication between Chinese and Africans, Chinese and Kenyans, and then you migrate into far more complex issues. And and at first, when again when I saw about the Confucius Institutes, I have to say that I was a little bit like, oh, okay, well, I feel like I've seen this before. And then once you started going into these the complexities of it, about the apartments that are being built, but not necessarily the Chinese are taking into account some of the local Kenyan needs that they're imposing kind of designs that were built and designed for Beijing, but not really taking into account what people need in Nairobi. Uh, and then going into even more complexities on NGOs and culture and communication and management. Uh, and that's where I found it so interesting. But the key theme that emerged for me from that I thought was so compelling was this this voice of a new generation. You talk to Huang Hongxiang, who's an old friend of our podcast, and to Arting Luo, again, uh, who's at the Sino-African uh, Committee for Excellence, which is a nonprofit in Nairobi. These are two young members of the new, de- new generation of Chinese who are there. You profiled quite a few young volunteers as well. Let's take a listen just for people to get a little sample of behind the belt and the emphasis on the new generation. After spending just 10 days in Nairobi, we already saw the indisputable influence that China has on Kenya across business and education. While some of these developments can obviously cause social friction, it is the younger generation that have already started looking past their differences. They focus on what can be achieved by working together and embracing each other's culture. China is rapidly growing their global footprint with strategic investments across the world. And the side effect is that the language and the culture are getting more exposure. If you look back at the map again, you can see that Kenya is only one of the many stations in the One Belt, One Road initiative. The international dynamics will surely change when progressively more developing countries cooperate with China to advance themselves. But what will the cultural side effects be? And how will the attitude towards Chinese evolve when this new generation of Chinese expand their impact across the globe? So what inspired you to focus on the young people rather than what more most documentarians and most of the news coverage tends to focus on the more established political and diplomatic relationship? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, I think like starting off it is quite personal to us to represent or to give young people a voice. Like Philip and I uh, are both uh, Chinese. We uh, even though we grew up in Holland, our cultural heritage and like the way we look is definitely Chinese. So we feel oftentimes how the media likes to talk about China and Chinese people is either on a very like high level political economics or on a personal level is maybe more stereotypical. Um, it's like, for example, Chinese traveling abroad and like having different habits or behaving a certain way. Whereas for us, um, more international-minded Chinese, I suppose, we live in Shanghai, we travel all around the world, and we meet these like you know amazing Chinese people who are either uh, who have either fully grown up here or had uh, experience uh, studying, working abroad, who are doing some really cool stuff. And we just felt in general that that is kind of underrepresented in the media narrative currently. And then like 
the first, like the very first inspiration to start this film, uh, as you mentioned, it is really our passion project. Was that um, around this time last year, I read an article on BBC that uh, that kind of zoomed in on um, this Chinese-initiated, funded school in the Mathari slums in Nairobi, and they uh, interviewed like the the founder uh, of that organization, which is uh, Liu, uh, who is also featured in our film. And they just like, the whole article had like, could have been so amazing in my opinion, because I was wondering like, what is this guy doing there? Uh, what was his motivation to start that? What is the impact? How do the kids react? How do the parents react? But instead it just like really scratched the surface and kind of framed it in a way that said, oh, the Chinese people are now like building schools in the slums in Kenya and, and just teaching them Chinese without giving much context, except for saying that they were quite skeptical about the motivations behind this. And frankly, it made me quite irritated and, and even more so curious. I was like, well, there must be more to it than just that. So I called up Philip, uh, told him the story, and I asked him, like, do you want to go explore? Hmm. Yeah, and just to come back to um, the young people, just to add on what Didi said, um, it, it is that we felt that they are kind of unrepresented in the current narrative. And... Um, you know, maybe we can touch on it a bit later, but uh, part of it is about, you know, we, we, we didn't really want to dwell into the whole, you know, is China good or bad for Africa, right? And we wanted to say, okay, let's, let's try to tell a bit of a different story and just say, you know, this is not something that's going away. Um, this is something that will be only more of it. I'm talking about like China globalization. And then we said, okay, let's just kind of paint a film where you know, we accept that it's, it's here and then what, how's that's the, how does the future look like? So, you know, we focused a bit on the future and then that's where the young people got in the picture. That is what actually what I wanted to point out as well is that you, you the structure of the documentary is very interesting in the sense that you con, you it's not really that you're contrasting China and Africa, but it's more you're contrasting established old school Chinese presence in Africa, the big companies or the government, and then a younger, newer, more kind of ad hoc presence of Chinese people in Africa, where the, you know, kind of the companies frequently have a lot of problems in in communicating with Kenyans, whereas a lot of a lot of the work that the, the younger Chinese people do actually focus on bridging communication between the two. Um, to, you know, drawing on that, to, to which... How successful do you feel these young people are in actually, you know, kind of opening real communication with Kenyans? To which extent are they still being seen by Kenyans as outsiders or just Chinese? And to which extent are they finding a, a real niche for themselves in a Kenyan society? Hmm. Hmm. I think uh, I think from when we were there, we experienced that um, I guess like the Chinese and the Kenyans were very much like living their own lives, and especially like you said, like in the old school kind of like business sense or infrastructure, like those type of industries. But then as soon as we spend some more time with like the the younger people uh, in our film, like for example, Arting or Hong Xiang or Liu, uh, we really got to see what their day jobs look like, uh, which is like for Liu, he's like literally on the ground in the schools, making sure that the kids have what they need. Uh, when he has time, he does like soccer training because uh, that's something that he's passionate about. As well as we went with Arting to one of the events that the uh, Sino-China 
Center of Excellence has uh, organized that uh, actually talks to it's kind of like an open day of like the international school there where they give Chinese parents more information about what their curriculum looks like. And for example, when we're talking to Hong Xiang, um, he was actually mentioning that some of the uh, Chinese organizations uh, who have a business presence in Kenya actually asked them to consult uh, for them to help them kind of close this cultural gap. So, I mean, obviously we didn't do this like at scale or have any like data or, or sort of quantitative measurement of whether it's working or not, but just like on a personal level or on an organizational level, we definitely see that the effort of um, these young Chinese uh, having a presence in Nairobi and doing this uh, as work, either paid or volunteering or NGO, that it definitely like touches the people that they are in direct contact with. And we definitely see that the reception is is quite open. You know, it's funny because listening to 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 the different people that you interviewed on the Chinese side, on the one hand, I was very encouraged and very exciting because it is it, very excited. It isn't neat to see young Chinese people who, in many ways, confront and challenge the stereotype about uh, the Chinese in Africa. Uh, on the other side, a little bit of concern is starting to creep into, um, into my feeling about this. There's something that just doesn't feel right, and I'd like to get your take on it. Um, Westerners, U.S. and Europeans, have long been criticized for the white savior complex, that young, idealistic, blonde-haired college graduates from Holland and the United States rush down to Africa because they're going to save Africans. They're going to work in a nonprofit, and they're going to teach them our ways, and they will rise them up. We know that that's not true. We know it's useless, that oftentimes a 25-year-old who goes to Africa with all the best intentions lacks any of the sophistication and the knowledge and the complexity and the language abilities and all of the things that it takes to help people who have very, very complex social problems that they're over trying to overcome. At the same time, governments are becoming more paternalistic in China. There's a lot more of, you're starting to hear the tone coming out of the Chinese government, which is, they should follow our ways. And that's very much what U.S. and in Europe have been saying for a very, very long time. Editorials in the Global Times will kind of say China has paved the way for Africa to follow its example, the creation of special economic zones. And there is this paternalism. And when I heard Hong Xiang say he's bringing young people from China to come and see the slums in Kenya, I don't know. I mean, that just feels very familiar territory. When you were recording that, the, sh the interviews, did that come up for you as well, that this does feel a little bit familiar with what the West and how they've defined Africa is in the, the context of nonprofits helping people, helping those poor people, rather than being more collaborative and partners, as Chinese investors were very early on in the relationship, but as the relationship now matures, we're getting into a more paternalistic phase. Did that cross your mind? I mean, I know that's a leading question, but at the same time, I'm just curious if, if that occurred to you when you were listening to some of this. Um, yeah, definitely. And this is also something we talked about, but perhaps more with, uh, with the Kenyan people that we featured in our film. Uh, and we asked them about how do they feel about this, like kind of on the receiving end. And I think like their take on it was, I mean, sure, they know that every country, especially when it comes from like a governmental level, has like drives their own agenda and have some sort of like influence that they want to spread. But at the same time, I think what uh, George, uh, who's in our featured in our film, who was like a local entrepreneur, he actually had a more pragmatic approach to it by saying like maybe you 
you know, China is not like the super ideal or like the dream marriage that we thought of. But at the same time, they're basically the only ones right now uh, who can give us or who can help us getting to a point where we want to go. So he was like using a very illustrative example of like this road needs to be built because then we can all get to work faster and save time to like do more productive stuff or spend time with our family. If the Chinese come in and do it, they can get it done within within a year. Whereas like maybe compared to what they were used to before with like Western partners, um, it would take just a year to get the approvals done. He said the West was done. I mean, he said they're finished in Africa compared to the Chinese. He was emphatic about that. Yeah, he had a quite a strong opinion. But I think like um, for us, like obviously uh, we're not like uh, academics in like socioeconomics, nor do we have like any per- political career or maybe our opinions are not as complicated or well thought through. But just by spending time with the people and also like, you know, for us navigating the city, uh, trying to make our interview schedules, it made a lot of sense that a country as Kenya would right now choose for uh, a Chinese partnership just because, you know, their mentality um, or the thing that they have aligned is mentality of like, okay, let's get this done. What do we want? How do we get there? Kobus, let me put the same question to you as a media scholar, uh, soon to be a former media scholar and soon to be a China-Africa scholar, I might add, um, about the changing narrative that on the one hand, we heard so much about how the Chinese were perceived as, you know, colonizers, and, and that's very negative. And now we're, we're starting to see the, the first green shoots of this more paternalistic type of coverage and the new narrative take shape. What's your impression on that? My feeling, in also just in watching the documentary, was that the, within Kenya itself, there seemed to be quite a quite a pragmatic view of this you know with maybe you know maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it but but you know what i what i felt i saw was a a kind of an, an acknowledgement that africa has always been someone's project you know kind of that, that, that there's always this tendency for outside outside actors to want to uh, impose a, or to look at africa through a particular kind of lens and that that it's it has become africa's job to to get what they can from that. I mean, maybe, maybe again, I'm overreading, but the, you know, the, the fact that all of this is happening within the context of the Belt and Road Initiative, um, where Kenya is obviously is a is a is an outpost of, of the official Belt and Road route. Um, you know, it on the one hand, it does position Kenya within this wider. Chinese geopolitical plan, but on the other hand, on the other hand, it um, it opens up these these opportunities for Kenya to kind of get what they can, you know, while the getting is good. Um, and it seemed to me that that the Kenyans, you know, from, it seems like they're they're kind of balancing those two issues and trying, you know, trying to trying to get what they can while it's possible to get something. Um, you you guys. You know, you 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 name check the Belt and Road in in the title of your film. Um, to which extent, what, what kind of impressions did you get from of how Kenyans see the Belt and Road scheme and how they fit into it? I don't think we uh, really focused on that as much uh, while we were doing the interviews. And I think the Belt and Road was more of a sort of like high level justification for us, like, you know, why Kenya or why Nairobi or, you know, who, who put this on the map and like kind of what map is it on? Uh, we actually didn't really discuss this in depth uh, with any of the people that we spoke to uh, in our film. 
But we did have like a quite interesting um, interview that actually didn't make like our final cut, which was um, um, which was with a uh, with a local uh, Kenyan engineer who has been working for Huawei, and kind of he raised this point of yes, Africa's always been someone's project, and maybe like now doing this with China is more attractive uh, than it has been with the West. But eventually, it's still like us Kenyan taxpayers who have to pay back these like loans and investments. And currently, of course, like the Kenyan government is uh, making agreements and making deals with the Chinese government. But by the time all of this needs to be returned and paid back in full, uh, this government might not be in place anymore. So he was actually putting it more as you know we should as as just like citizens uh, should hold our government more responsible for these kind of deals that they're making uh, internationally and we should hold some of the bargaining power uh, because we will be eventually the ones who are paying these things back. Philip, let me put the last question to you. Uh, you guys have made this this independent film. Uh, filmmaking is not your full-time job. This is not like other filmmakers who will create a film and then spend months and months and months going on the independent film festival circuit, promoting it and doing other things. Both of you have day jobs that you have to kind of live up to. So what's the plan? What are you going to do with this uh, this piece of work that you've done? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, we are super happy that we actually got it out. That was already a, a great milestone for us. Um, and then we actually um, got it published here in China as well. And then for the next step, I guess, the, the, you know, one of the... One of the questions we always get is, you know, oh, are you going to the other locations of the Belt and Road Initiative? Um, it's something that we've been thinking about. So one is, you know, we want to see if any film festivals would like to take up, um, take up our current film. And then we are actually thinking about creating a series um, and going around other locations uh, along the route as well. So that's uh, one of the things that we're working on. Great way to spend your vacation time, by the way, just exploring the Belt and Road and doing documentary films. So I, I can think of worse ways to spend your vacation time. Right, right. <laughs> and if people want to watch the film, you said it's been released in China. Where in China can people watch it? Uh, it's currently on Vice, on uh, vice.cn. Um, they can search for Behind the Belt. Okay, and then... Uh, Outside of China, is, are you you're releasing it on YouTube? You mentioned and other places as well. If people want to find it, so right now uh, we are only releasing it on YouTube and with you guys. Excellent. Well, we are thrilled to have it. The film is Behind the Belt: A Look at China's Cultural Influence in Kenya. It's a fascinating piece of work. I really recommend that everybody go out and watch it. Uh, and then think about some of the themes that, that GD and, and, and Philip have been talking about while you're watching it, the complexities of this relationship, the new generation that's there. Uh, some of the paternalism that we've seen from the West is also creeping into it. But at the same time, uh, it, it's coming in a different flavor because the Chinese are, in fact, bringing a different approach and a different cultural mindset to their engagement in Africa. So it is an absolutely fascinating. Thank you both for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Happy, happy to have us. Philip Mann and Gidi Guo joined us from Shanghai. Their film is available again on vice.cn and also on YouTube. Kobus, what I liked so much about the documentary was the rawness of it. 
it it lacked the polish that a lot of more experienced filmmakers bring to to their pictures. There's no doubt about it. This is a little bit rough around the edges in terms of the editing and the storytelling. Uh, but it's got an authenticity that I really appreciated. And there is a directness in this film that I that I also, again, want to praise the two filmmakers for bringing to it. And I find that it's interesting because the complaint that a lot of journalists have and filmmakers who go to Africa to cover the Chinese in Africa and cover Africans as well to comment on it is that they can't get access or they can't get straight answers. And these two filmmakers, who are not professionals, spent 10 days in Kenya and got right to the heart of so many of the key issues. And in that sense, I, I think they deserve an enormous amount of praise. I really found it interesting to see the different China-Africa of Chinese businesses in Kenya in action. Um, you know, that it's, it isn't this just this um, stereotype of, of massive infrastructure development, um, but you can actually see some of the nitty-gritty of, of the different complexities of China Chinese development in, in Kenya in action. Um, and you can also hear, you know, some of the people involved actually discussing their jobs, which is difficult to get. It's, it's rare. Like, we, we know from covering it for a long time, it's you know, most filmmakers try and cover it and they never get that kind of access. Yeah. So I think it's really it's really refreshing it, to see. It was refreshing and is especially refreshing as, again, Isabel Young, who was the vice correspondent who went to the DRC, did a, just a piece of trash reporting, which was just horrible. Uh, the list of other journalists, as, as, as GD pointed out, the, the BBC coverage was, was totally subpar. I mean, most of the international press at some time or another has just done a just a terrible job in covering the story. So kudos to two, again, non-journalists, non-filmmakers who just kind of stepped out, I guess, on their personal vacation time and shot a documentary and not a bad one. I mean, quite an interesting one. And really, the, the last point that I'll make is that it's exciting that we're seeing an increase in the pace of documentary film. I mean, this is the second show that you and I have done on China-Africa documentaries in, what, a month, month and a half, when we talked yes. about Africans in Iwu. And so to see young people generating... Uh, filmmaking and ideas, and it's really broadening, I think, our understanding of the subject. So in that sense, this is really cool, and I really hope that everybody goes and checks it out on YouTube. They're putting it out for free, which a lot of independent filmmakers don't do. They lock up the films during the film festival circuit in the hope that they can get awards. So in this case, you can actually go out and see it. So I recommend that everybody go check out Behind the Belt, a look at China's cultural influence in Kenya. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.